Welcome to Iris Equity, the podcast on all things law and technology. I'm Tima. I'm Catherine. I'm Paul. And on this episode, Darknet Marketplaces. So welcome to another brand new episode of the Darknet series. On this episode, we really want to look at what the Darknet is most famous for, which is basically these virtual marketplaces where you can buy all sorts of illicit and interesting things. So we wanted to pretty much take a deep dive into this and talk a little bit about some niche and interesting marketplaces and yeah, just discuss in general how it works, how payments are taking place on these marketplaces and any other interesting things to look out for. Right. So to dive into the topic, uh, I have a little story that might be interesting. Um, So a few years back, I think in 2014, there was an exhibition in Switzerland uh, at the Kunsthalle in St. Gallen, which was called The Dark Net from Memes to Onionland. And what they were doing there was basically to use a bot to order random goods from dark web um, (laughs) marketplaces. Uh, So this is very interesting. And then the goal there was really to see and explore how um, the the users of the dark web, sellers and buyers, um, build trust and how these anonymous participants interact, but also how the procedure works. Um, so what they did is that they, um, so the bot actually ordered 12 different items and everything arrived, which I think it's already an interesting fact. <laughs> and what the bot actually uh, ordered was an interesting list. So I will go through the list because I think it tells a lot about what there is on the dark net as well so it ordered a fake pair of jeans a baseball cap with a hidden camera a stash can a pair of nike trainers a decoy letter so the one you can use to see whether your address is being monitored some cigarettes um some super special keys uh, a fake handbag and 10 ecstasy pills so this says a lot about obviously a lot of these items are illegal some are like just fake but still very interesting i think and the artists involved were also saying that um, they were surprised by how much these markets were sort of copying procedures from like Amazon or eBay. Yeah, how they literally just look like normal e-commerce platforms, but selling illicit products. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's interesting the list because this is more normal than I would have expected because you hear all these stories of people selling drugs and human trafficking and guns and all of this. And you see fake clothes, which isn't really that that dramatic. Yeah, I think it's interesting to see the range that you can literally buy anything from a fake handbag to someone's credit card details. It's like so broad and all of the stuff is just accessible and available if you know how to get into the right places. So I maybe to to dive in some of these markets, I looked a bit into how drugs are sold online. And I think it's quite interesting that although this is quite well known to a certain degree, uh, this all only constitutes a small amount of the drug um, sales uh, worldwide. It's only a, a minuscule amount, right? Yeah. I mean, I've read somewhere, I don't remember the source, so don't hold a gun to my head, but I read somewhere that um, the European drug markets is something in the range of 2 billion euros and the sale of drugs online is only a couple million. So when you look at the discrepancy, it's just, it's it's a very small fraction of the actual legal activity that takes place online. Yeah. And I I read a study on how this network works and, and they analyzed essentially, because this is all out in the open. 
Um, unlike other um, drug sales, which yeah. happen in secret, this is publicly available. You can just look at it like you'd look at an eBay posting. So it's really easy to analyze also for researchers. Uh, and what they found out is that even though, for example, the Silk Road was always described as the eBay for drugs or the e eBay for illegal products, it's not as much uh, business to consumer as it might seem, but it's mostly business to business. So this is, this is the... Um, the dealers essentially buying drugs on the internet and then selling it via normal means. Oh, that's very interesting. So it's more so people, dealers purchasing and then going on the streets and selling it normally. Exactly. Okay. Uh, and it really had an impact, at, at least uh, some impact on uh, the drug market because it leads to less violence because obviously buyer and seller don't know who they are and don't have any context, so there's no possibility really for violence. Uh, and also supposedly for uh, more or higher quality in the drugs, so less fraud essentially happening. Yeah, I, I also read somewhere exactly what you're saying, how there was a study that they conducted where they bought some drugs different quantities over a different period of time online as opposed to, as opposed to on the streets and then they tested the two and the drugs that were bought online were always significantly of a better quality than street value. What I always think about in these research projects is who funds the researchers buying drugs. Yeah, and then and then what afterwards? <laughs> That's what I always think and then what? What happens after you write the paper? <laughs> that is um, true. Another interesting trash probably. Right? But another interesting marketplace that I looked into was the marketplace of personal data. And this is a marketplace that has really grown in the last couple of years. And personal data on the dark web is a really, really hot commodity. So found an interesting research done by a privacy advocacy group called Privacy Affairs. And they basically um, conducted a study where they used the methodology to scan all of these dark web marketplaces, forums, websites, so on. And they created an index of different types of personal data and counterfeit documents and things like that. And basically, you can see what the value of your information is right now currently on the dark web. So it was super interesting to see things like cloned credit cards and how much you would pay for a cloned credit card. And um, another thing I found really interesting was that PayPal was one of the most dominant um, things that is being sold in this area. So PayPal accounts are going for like $150. And then if you want them to send you money from a PayPal account that's been compromised, then you pay like $350 to have that kind of interaction. So it's like just really interesting things that you would never really think would be there, but yeah, so it's all there. Gmail accounts. But also surprisingly cheap, right? So just so a few cheap. dollars and you can have access in principle to someone's bank account with a few extra steps probably. Right. And it's so weird how they value it as well. So you pay $350 and then they'll send you between, if they have access to someone's PayPal account, you pay $350 and they'll send you between a thousand to $3,000 back. Yeah, I think here again, it's also this element of trust that is coming back. So mm. this works only as long as you can really trust the, the seller. And I think it's back to the whole question of, you know, this element of feedback and collective dynamics they have on the dark web that really plays a huge role in these marketplaces functioning. Yeah, 100%. And 
Sorry, no, go ahead, I, I looked a bit into credit cards. I, I listened to a podcast episode on this and I found this quite interesting. There's a real market on this with different players doing like having different roles. So there's maybe one guy who sends out phishing emails and gets the credit card information, but he doesn't really know how to either clone credit cards physically or how to get money out of them. So he just sells the data to someone else who might have this information and who cooperates with someone else who gets the money physically out of the cash machine then. So this is like a whole ecosystem, a whole uh, like field of economics. Yeah, like a whole cartel and everyone has their position. Right, but this isn't really like organized very well. So these yeah. are like independent players who are just selling information that they have and someone else doing something with this information. So it's not really well organized. It's more um, just a, a market. Yeah. Another thing that I found super interesting was how you could pay for hacking services. And I mean, we all know that this is a thing, um, but it was interesting how they were also offering like, yeah, we'll hack your Netflix, your own Netflix account for you and make it in such a way that you don't have to pay anymore for the next year. Or we can hack Uber for you and make it in such a way that you get free rides for two years and you just have to pay like $200 for that. So I thought that was really quite interesting and just quite I don't know, ran, not random, but it didn't seem as illicit as you would expect things to be. Right. But yeah. then I think I saw also that they have like Uber accounts of the driver. So that's it oh, gets yeah, a little bit that. more complicated. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, really interesting um, stuff that happens in the area of social media and personal data and things like that. Um, and if you... I mean, we've had an episode where we talked about how to make sure that your personal data is not compromised. So we'll link those in the description bar. You can go back and you can check if you've been part of a data breach because a lot of information that ends up on the dark web is information that is derived from different data breaches that take place. So, yeah. Nice. So I have a little story again um, of a very, I would say, niche uh, market. Well, I don't know if we can call it market, but there is definitely the beginning of a possible trade there. Um, so a few years back, there was an interesting case in New Zealand where a 19th century painting was stolen from a museum. And then seven months later, it was found for sale on a dark website called White Shadow. And some seller was claiming that um, this painting was 100% genuine and original uh, painting, this specific one that was stolen. And um, it was, you know, listing it with like how it would be shipped in four days in a specific type of wooden box. Wow. And after one month of auction, actually, um, the leading bid was exceeding the legitimate price, um, like market price of the artwork um, and was sold. But like what was interesting is that the, um, the head of the museum was saying this is 100% fake because it looks like it was just, you know, photoshopped into an old frame, just the picture of the painting, but it was still sold. So this was something that really triggered my curiosity. And the question was, is there also art on the dark web or cultural goods? Um, because I think this is something that is never discussed. Yeah. And going through Reddit posts and um, also on the dark web itself, I did manage to find quite a few cultural goods. So, for example, looted art from like war areas yeah. and so on. Um, so this is an interesting one as well, like an in a new market. And it really plays a big role in the whole discussion 
on another field of law, which is, you know, international law and illicit trade of cultural goods. Yeah, 100%. And I think what's also quite interesting is that, like we said earlier, before we started the podcast, there's a bit of a, a literature gap in that area. Because when you're trying to do research to find information on this, it's quite difficult to really find like articles and sources really talking about this or public investigations that have gone. And I think there's not a lot written about this specific right. niche area of Because what's I think going when on. you talk about drugs or, you know, um, even personal data now, you know, fraud and these really clearly illegal fields and objects then obviously when you talk about art it looks very you know not so problematic but yeah. in the end this mm -hmm. is a very important field of law as well you know unesco convention and so on and it's massive value yeah no 100 percent um okay so now we've talked about all these different marketplaces how do transactions take place i feel like if i was listening that would be my next question what goes on and how do payments happen yeah and i mean it's interesting because you a want to need to stay anonymous and therefore you also don't know who the other person is you you're buying from or selling from so this uh, for this mainly cryptocurrencies are used obviously because um, other um, forms of payment can be traced uh, and well mainly this was bitcoin uh, at least initially and what i found quite interesting is that um that you can trace Bitcoin, so it's, it's, it's a public list essentially, so you know who, or at least which wallet, which account sent money to which other account. And to circumvent this, there um, are services, so-called Bitcoin tumblers, mm -hmm. that you pay the Bitcoin in and it pays out, so a lot of people pay in, and it pays out smaller amounts uh, in at random times to different accounts, so you can't really trace it back to uh, whoever put the money in. Oh, okay. So just a way to circumvent that little possibility of a lack of anonymity. Exactly. And I mean, re uh, police and, and also researchers are working on uh, ways to essentially connect the dots and to, to um, trace the money back to, to different transactions and to account holders. Um, and also doing this automatically so that it's not just some person who looks at the whole list. Uh, but it's 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 essentially a fight uh, between between the two. Yeah, what I found really interesting um, in the area of cryptocurrencies is that there's been a bit of a shift on the dark web from Bitcoin to what they're calling altcoins like Monero, and apparently these alternative coins are now what's really being used because, of course, we know the value of Bitcoin continues to skyrocket. So people want to hold on to their Bitcoin; they don't want to use it to make these small transactions. And then also, there's been complaints about the speed of processing transactions with Bitcoin and the cost of of using Bitcoin in these type of like tiny. Um, exchanges on the dark web. So people are shifting away from using Bitcoin and using other types of cryptocurrency to do this. I also found it quite interesting that some of these altcoins are designed in a way to not make them traceable. So yes. like this is one of the, the key points uh, of, of their design. Uh, and obviously this lends them for, for illicit trade. Uh, what I also found quite interesting is how or one of the regulatory approaches to this, to having essentially unregulated trade of, of cryptocurrency, is uh, regulating the point where you exchange it into quote-unquote real money, mm. 
So essentially implementing rules to uh, authenticate a, a user for a cryptocurrency exchange. So when you buy the, crypt, uh, the cryptocurrency, when you buy the Bitcoin or when you sell it back to, to your euros or dollars or whatever, um, then you need to identify yourself. And this can be then be used to, to trace back um, different transactions to you. Yeah, I mean, I think all of the activities that law enforcement is taking in this area are really, really interesting. And we're going to dedicate a whole episode to that to talk about from an international perspective, what are these large international law enforcement agencies doing to track people on the dark net and to really intercept these different marketplaces and shut them down. Because we we found that as we were doing research, we would read about a marketplace and then the next source would say, yeah, but it's been shut down. So there's a lot of activity going on and we think that it would be interesting to really dive into this and take a deeper look. Definitely. Now, what we want to talk a bit about more about is the question of how these transactions work when they're completely anonymous. So, Catherine, you quickly uh, touched upon this. Uh, yeah, before. this is really interesting. So, um, of course, it's fully anonymous. So the big drawback is that you can't really have the certainty that what you're buying um, it's, you know, what you're trying to actually get. So there is a whole system of, you know, verifying users and sellers. And there are even now specific uh, browsers. So there was one that I think that was well known. Now, apparently, as Sima just said, is shut down. But there will be another one that is probably identical with a different name. Of course. So this was called Grams. And here you could really like either look for a specific platform or a seller, and there you find all the reviews with like ratings and so on. So almost like, I would say better than like what you find on Amazon or on eBay. And I was looking at um, a YouTube videos, trying to explain how you can safely buy drugs online or anything, but still also that brackets interesting that this is on YouTube, right. you know? Um, and there they were really explaining how these reviews are like real compared to real e-commerce platforms. So there's no, so this is so, you know, fascinating. Like, you know, they're really saying, look, what you read here is true. It's not when you look at all these reviews of someone that was paid because there's no interest here. Yeah. And, you know, even the seller wants the reviews to be true yeah. because that's the only way for them to really build trust and a market there. So the question there is, again, you know, going back to the whole policy question of how to regulate platforms mm. and any form of intermediary also in an e-commerce sense, this is an interesting environment to really test what no regulation looks like mm. and what can users on their own do to make sure that, you know, the market functions and it's a situation where the sale is fair and so on. So... Maybe this could be also an interesting point to take into account when looking at platform liability. Yeah. So essentially, it's one big honor system that at least somehow works. Right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. 100%. And I, I mean, if we go, if we look at Silk Road as an example, on that platform, they also had review system and then they would remove sellers that had poor reviews. So it was, it's always in the interest of the seller to make sure that their product is good, that their service is good so that they can continue to stay on the platform otherwise, or on the website or on, in the marketplace. Otherwise it, it gets known if your product is terrible and then you end up losing out. So it's like the whole 
ecosystem kind of works in a way where everyone knows they're doing something shady. So it's in everyone's best interest to make sure that everything works efficiently. Yeah. And even linking it back to the way we started today. So the story about the bot ordering goods, um, there was only one good that was not delivered and this was a fake handbag. And the seller actually contacted um, the buyer to say that they had issues with the delivery and they would, you know, refund following basically uh, e-commerce laws uh, to the letter. So I thought this was really quite a fun, interesting aspect. Yeah, I agree. And I I also read an article about this building on following e-commerce laws, um, saying that often these marketplaces have detailed descriptions on you know, the product itself, the amount that you have to pay for, like everything is quite transparent. Um, when the delivery will take place, all of these different aspects that we would expect in a traditional e-commerce platform to be very transparent and open about how the sale and things like that. On platforms like this, they're also doing the same thing just because of the ecosystem of trust that they've been able to create. Yeah, so it's not the law forcing them to be transparent, but actually the market forcing them to. Yeah, Yeah. So, I mean, putting it out there a bit extreme, but, you know, instead of having all these what if in policymaking about platform liability, why not take some empirical evidence from the dark web? Yeah, because it's there (laughs) (laughs) and it's working because all of these marketplaces always spring up, even though they get shut down, they spring up again and trade on the dark web continues to happen. I mean, I saw a source that said that there's over 320,000 transactions on a on a very frequent basis at a time. So, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Thank you for listening to this episode and we hope you stay tuned for the next one. Bye. 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 (laughs)